It's episode 250 of SSR, and welcome to it. I am so excited to have you here for this major episode, which just so happens to fall on the same week as the five-year anniversary of the show. We also just so happen to be chatting about a book that was one of my favorites as a kid, and that, spoiler alert, maintains that status even all these years later. The book is Joan Bauer's Hope Was Here, and it was published in 2000. It was declared a Newbery Honor book the following year. In Hope Was Here, high schooler Hope and her aunt Addie are moving yet again for yet another restaurant job. This time, they are off to Wisconsin, where Addie has been asked to support a man named G.T. Stoop with his diner as he navigates cancer treatment. Hope takes pride in her ample waitressing experience and in her ability to adapt to new places, but change is still hard, and she still longs for some normalcy every now and then. Within a few weeks of the move to Wisconsin, Hope finds herself swept up in the movement to get G.T. Stoop elected for mayor. This experience connects her with other teens in the area, boosts her sense of belonging, and gets her fired up to defeat the town's sitting leader, a corrupt businessman named Eli Millstone. The book's political drama unfolds alongside some personal developments and romances, but you'll hear more about that soon. Today, you will hear my guest and I chat about Hope Was Here's small town setting, the book's parallels to Gilmore Girls, the way it plays into several narrative tropes from the late 90s and early aughts, the romanticization of working in food service, found family, political organizing for kids, and just how contemporary Hope Was Here felt to us in 2023. While I was a big fan of this novel when I was growing up, it was brand new to my guest, so you'll find something to enjoy in this episode whether you are familiar with Hope or not. There is a very brief mention of miscarriage and infertility near the beginning of the episode, so please be mindful if that's a trigger for you. Joining me for episode 250 is Bridget Morrissey. Bridget lives in Los Angeles, but hails from Oak Forest, Illinois. When she's not writing, she can be found coaching gymnastics or headlining concerts in her living room. Her adult sapphic romance, That Summer Feeling, her previous adult romances, A Thousand Miles and Love Scenes, as well as her first two YA novels, What You Left Me and When the Light Went Out, are all available now. In the fall of 2024, Bridget will make her adult cozy fantasy romance debut with This Will Be Fun, under the pen name E.B. Asher, co-written with Emily Wiberly and Austin Sigmund Broca. Emily and Austin introduced me to Bridget when they were on SSR earlier this year, and I am so glad they did. Follow Bridget on Instagram at Bridget J. Morrissey and on Twitter at Bridge Morrissey. Next week, the pod will be taking its brief annual summer break, but you will still be able to find me on social media. At SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. I love to share what's happening behind the scenes of the show, as well as what I'm reading, baking, and watching on TV. My golden retriever, Irv, is also a regular presence. If you'd like to help me celebrate five years of the podcast this week, there are a few things you can do and I would seriously appreciate any and all of them. The first one is super easy. Open up your podcast player of choice and make sure you're subscribed and or following SSR. If you haven't yet, you might also consider leaving a five-star rating or review. Kick up the celebrations a notch by sharing a screenshot of this episode to your Instagram story. Tag me at SSRPod so I can see it, share it, and expand the party. The biggest gift you can give SSR on its fifth birthday is support on Patreon. Patreon supporters swap a few dollars every month for access to exclusive patron rewards and the satisfaction that comes with knowing they're keeping this indie podcast going strong. Since you can become a patron for as little as $1 per month, 
You can think of it as paying just 25 cents per episode. Hours and hours of preparation go into the show every week, so I think that's a pretty good deal. Plus, you get access to our Discord channel, guest Q&As, the SWR book club, monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, and more. It's tons of fun and full of great people. Learn more and get involved at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Thanks to each and every one of you for listening to this episode and hopefully many others and for being part of this five-year, 250-show milestone. I wouldn't be here without you. Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M and use code SSRpodcast when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a great place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. Stock up on great listens for your summer road trips and let me know what you're loving. One more reminder that the show will be on hiatus next week for summer vacation. But don't worry, because there are so many episodes to catch up on while you wait for us to come back on July 11th. Now it's time for episode 250. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Bridget. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thanks for having me. So this is the last episode before we take a brief summer break, literally just one week, which is kind of a lame summer break the more I think about it. But I can't think of a better way to go out than Hope Was Here because I loved this book when I was a kid. I couldn't wait to reread it for the podcast. And I'm going to come right out and say it, listeners. I loved it just as much this time, if not more, than I did when I was a kid. So it feels like a good way to go out. Bridget, I'd love to hear more about your history with Hope Was Here or with its author, Joan Bauer, and why you chose to choose it for this episode. I had never read it. I'm not super familiar with Joan Bauer's work, but I saw it in the list of choices and it just compelled me. I liked the title. I liked that it was a standalone. And I always like going back and looking at works from around that time because I find that especially the genre, which this is like young adult, has changed so much but then there's also just the pillars that stay the same so I found myself interested in seeing kind of like what was going on in 2000 when people were writing because it in YA because it's just so not what it is now as a genre. What kind of books were you into when you were in middle and high school? In middle school I was well I guess I It's tough for me because it all kind of blends together. But I think of like when I think of myself as young Bridget, I was really big into reading like the serialized, like um, the gymnast series by Elizabeth Levy, uh, Bad News Ballet books. I loved like the, the paperback books like that. And I sort of had a reading, I guess, lapse in high school in that I was so busy with my school commitments that I just read what we read in school. So, you know, like The Great Gatsby, Wuthering Heights, Jane Eyre. 
Um, and I didn't do much recreational reading and I came back to it post high school. So it's like, that's why when I think of my reading, that's, that's what comes to me. Those books I read like before school consumed me and then after. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting observation. And I remember feeling that way in high school and college. Like I feel like my sort of love for extracurricular reading went away a little bit. And so maybe that's why the books that I loved so much stand out to me because I didn't have a lot of time to read. So I would like eat up as many books as I could in the summertime. So that's maybe why a book like Hope Was Here looms so large in my memory. But yeah, I agree. Like I was such a big reader when I was in elementary school, definitely early middle school. And I feel like it just kind of petered out a little bit after that. So it is so fun uh, as part of the podcast to come back to the books that I know that I loved. And then also on occasion to come back to books that like I never got a chance to read because I was so busy trying to do school things and like try to be a teenager, which at the time felt surprisingly stressful. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about Hope Was Here. It was published in 2000, written by Joan Bauer. It was a 2001 Newbery Honor Award winner, which is a really big deal. It wasn't the Newbery Medal winner, but it was pretty close. And I remember a couple of things about Hope Was Here. Um, I assume I read it pretty soon after it was published because I was 10 in 2000. And so I feel like this is probably something that I picked up when I was around 11 or 12. I remember the diner setting. I remember that it really ignited in me this interest in like creating worlds that were populated by lots of zany characters. Listeners of the show know that I, to this day, love both reading and writing ensemble stories. And so I like to think that Hope Was Here was perhaps instrumental in like setting that pattern because it is filled with all of these different characters. It's this town. It's almost Stars Hollow-esque actually for those Gilmore Girls fans out there. I hadn't watched Gilmore Girls uh, when I read Joan Bauer. It wasn't until a couple of years after that that I got into the show, but it feels like that. I did not remember anything about the political piece of this book. Like that totally escaped me. It went over my head or at least like wasn't memorable for me. So as soon as I started the book, I was like, great, we're in the diner. Like, I thought that was really cool. And then as soon as we were into like some of the more substantive political stuff, I was like, oh, this is so interesting that this is a book that stuck with me. So those are my kind of initial impressions of the book. I'm trying to remember like which of Joan Bauer's other work I was into at the time. And I I looked at her title list and honestly, like none of the others really jumped out to me. But I still remember her like looming pretty large as a literary presence when I was a kid. So I'm I'm not sure like why Hope Was Here is the one that jumps out to me the most. But listeners, if you were fans of other Joan Bauer books, please let me know because I would love to add them to our wish list. Bridget, I'm curious what you thought about Hope, our main character, as you got into the book at first. What was your initial impression of her? I found it really interesting the way that she could sort of blend into the background of her own story. A lot of the times, I think I'm so used to reading such an immediate character that reacts to everything. And she was a narrator that told you a lot and then would just very occasionally come in and and just be like heart-wrenching really about herself or her view of herself and her place in the world. But I think that was the first thing that stuck out to me was just the way that she is constantly observing others and and not really placing her own feelings on top of that narrative. And I thought that was a really fascinating way to create a narrator because I think as a writer, I tend to do the opposite where I'm like, maybe I put too much of it. Like I picked up this plate and it was heavy and it was hot. And she's just like, I carried six plates and it just moves right along, you know, and there's nothing 
more or less to it in that respect. And that was what initially jumped out at me. There's something kind of tropey going on here with Hope's living situation. Because I feel like in the 2000s especially, there was kind of this trend. And maybe it's continued, I don't know. Or maybe maybe I'm being critical of it as a trend. Again, I love this book. So anything that I say critical like is not to take away from my obsession. Hope is a girl who has been hopping all over the country with her aunt. And I do remember this string of narratives around this time period. And it's interesting, I actually just started working on editing the episode for the book Bloomability by Sharon Creech. And a similar thing is happening in that book where like the main character is part of a family that moves all over the place and like, you know, never can quite set down roots. And I think it was published within a couple of years of Joan Bauer. Like in my mind, I kind of I kind of group a book like Hope Was Here with a book like Bloomability. I think I was reading those books around the same time. And so I think there was this real interest. And and I do think like it comes in and out of fashion, just like so many literary and like storytelling trends of like reading about teens and families that are racking up all of these different stories around the country, going to different places. And it does, of course, like make for a really interesting protagonist because you're meeting somebody who's lived all of these different lives and had experiences that you as a reader maybe have never had. But I think that like, just as an adult who's now, you know, I've sort of by happenstance read these two stories somewhat back to back, it just like brought into focus the fact that like, that was a thing that we seemed to really be into. And I guess a little bit still, but I mean, do you remember that period of time? I feel like it was big in movies too. Yeah, I'm thinking of the what's the Natalie Portman film? I think it's her. Yes. Yeah, and it's like anywhere but here. <laughs> yes, um, that's what jumps to my mind, and I think that there's a sort of um, I guess when you're growing up, you know, it's like the that's the fantasy of like what if I could just pick it all up and go somewhere else and become someone new, and so maybe there was that escapism there that we gravitated toward but it does what's interesting about this is a lot of times that's done with an unreliable figure like an unreliable mother or or I guess father figure but it does seem to tend to be like the mother figure and in this case that's not the case like she has this hyper competent aunt that is her surrogate mother like her mother but for all intents and purposes and she is so on top of things, like sort of diligent to to a fault almost. Um, So I think that that was an interesting way to, I don't know if it's subverting the trope or to spin the trope and that it's not the flighty sort of carefree mom who's nomadic and just picks up and we've got to get out of town. There's a little more, I guess, purpose to it. Yeah, I loved that movie Anywhere But Here, by the way, when I was a kid, like, Americus. That's, I just, I don't think I'll ever forget that the baby's name was Americus and that she was born in a Walmart. Like it's such a, I don't think anybody could. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So specific. Okay. So yes, you just brought up Addie, who is Hope's aunt. And when Hope was born, her mother, first of all, named her Tulip, which Hope will never get over. And I don't really blame her. And her mother also kind of declared that she was not fit to be Hope's parent but Addie her older sister had always wanted a child and I thought it was interesting that Joan Bauer explicitly mentions miscarriage in the book because I feel like that was certainly not something that I had really heard about in pop culture in books in the early 2000s and I think even now like we're starting to see mentions of things like miscarriage and infertility in media geared toward teens but it's still like kind of 
picking up steam as something that younger people are talking about. So I did want to call that out because I noticed it as an adult. I don't know that it's something that I would have been able to really like note as a kid. So I was happy to see that because I feel like that's something that, you know, kids deserve to understand. And I appreciate the fact that Joan like didn't necessarily go into like all the details, but she was like, here's the word. And I'm sure that a lot of kid readers like read that word and maybe asked a parent to help them understand what it meant. So Addie had had a few miscarriages, had never really been able to lay down roots of her own to have a family. And so she takes hope in. And I I just wanted to um, note a couple of quotes from early in the book that I pulled out about Addie because there's just so much beautiful language about her in this story. Addie never promised that life would be easy, but she did promise that if I hung with her, the food would be good. And I think that was like page three or four. And I, I actually wrote directly under that line in all caps I love this book so much so it won me back over immediately and then later on when they're talking about making the move from Brooklyn to Wisconsin which is what really kicks off the action of the book Addie says to Hope Hope I know Gleason Beale did a number on your head and Gleason Gleason Beale for background is this guy who Addie was in a relationship with who really screwed them over like took advantage of them took all their money and that's why they have to leave Brooklyn so Addie says Hope I know Gleason Beale did a number on your head That man took our money and our jobs, but let's not give him anything else. Not our minds, our hearts, or our souls. He's not worth it. We're not going to hide from the truth. This is probably the hardest move we've made together, honey, but we're going to give it all we've got to make it work. And if it still doesn't fit, we'll decide what to do. We won't stay someplace that isn't right forever, I promise. And then as she's reflecting on this, Hope narrates, Addie always keeps her promises. That's why my mother gave me to her. I was like, oh, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. So beautiful. So I just like loved reading about Addie and about the relationship. There were so many lines like that throughout the book. Uh, One that comes to mind, and I didn't get a chance to write it down, but toward the end of the book when Addie's actually preparing for her wedding, but like she's in the kitchen, like in an apron, getting the food ready. And like, she can't be like a normal bride. Like she just, she has to be in control of everything. And Hope thinks to herself something like, everything I am, I owe to this woman. And that like nearly broke my heart. What did you think about the way that Hope talks about Addie and like narrates their life together. Yeah, it kind of like ties back to what I was saying earlier about the way that Hope is very succinct and she isn't, she's reflective, but only at certain points. But when she is, it's very declarative and it's very certain. And I think that that's obviously something we can glean that she took from Addie and that she knows how to move through the world and sort of make her decisions about things and be clear on what is good and right because of the moral compass she has from Addie. So I think that that was really beautifully done. And I think that it was done in a way that I didn't feel like I have seen maybe before or since, especially since, you know, we're looking at something that's 23 years old now. Yeah, it's very poignant. And it's, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed their dynamic. I enjoyed how unique I felt it was and the fact that while Hope spends a lot of the book seeking, she's seeking, you know, understanding who her father is. She's seeking sort of a closure with her biological mom or just an under deeper understanding of why her mom is the way she is. At the same time, she always has Addie as like such a constant, steady presence and that never wavers ever in the book. And I think that that's really beautiful. It occurs to me as you're sharing those thoughts that when I was a kid reading this book, 
I like really wanted to be Hope. Like I wanted to be just like her. And now I kind of want to be just like Addie. Like I would love to be an Addie for someone. Just a constant. Yeah, just like a go-getter, knows what she wants, does what she does and knows she does it well. Yeah. Are you a Gilmore Girls fan? I am, yeah. Okay, so I'm thinking about how like after the reboot came out a couple of years ago, both Rory and Lorelai like kind of came under fire. Like I feel like people were sort of disenchanted with both of them. And a lot of the criticism of Lorelai is just that she's like flaky and like never really took care of Rory the way she deserved and like was unreliable. I don't know that I agree with all of that. And of course, like who cares? Because the show was great and has brought me so much joy over the years. But I'm thinking about how like in this book, Addie is kind of like all of the good things about Lorelai. Like she is fun and like is teaching hope all of these life lessons and like sees her as a full human being which is I think what a lot of like young people responded to in Lorelai like Lorelai never babied Rory she like leveled with her all the time but she's not she kind of like doesn't have some of those arguably not so great characteristics of Lorelai yeah she is a very like if you zoomed in on it and just but there is something interesting about to reflect on I guess as an adult about the when you think about how much responsibility that Addie gives Hope, I mean, she has a job from the, like, as a young, young tween, basically, onward. And waitressing is, as this book portrays, but, like, this book has a definite, like, romantic lens on waitressing, for sure, is not an easy job. And it is not a job for the faint of heart. So that's something I think as an adult, I find myself and and it's true of Lorelai too. Whereas when you're a kid, like, yes, you want to be seen as an equal and you want to go into these interactions with adults being heard. And I think that both of these characters do that. But then there is something to, I guess, ponder about the amount of responsibility, particularly like hope is given as somebody so young, like in Brooklyn before, you know, as the story before we meet Hope, it's like she's been a waitress in Brooklyn, you know, and she's was 14 or something at the time when she started there. So yeah, and that brings us to this move that they're making. And as you're talking, like, I realize that when they're making this move from Brooklyn to Wisconsin, and presumably with all of these moves that they've made in the past, as Addie goes from diner job to diner job, like these decisions that Addie and Hope are seemingly making kind of together, although Addie ultimately like is the adult and has the final say, they're not just personal decisions. Like they're also kind of making professional decisions together. And the expectation is always that they're moving not only for Addie's job, but also for Hope's job. Like it never seems that there's a question that if and when Addie takes another job, Hope won't also be an active participant in that new endeavor, which is interesting. And I do think like to your point about the way that waitressing and food service is idealized in this book, I, I read in a review, I can't remember if it was in Kirkus or PW, but one of those one of those reviews talked about how the book kind of like over-romanticizes, over-idealizes working in a diner because, yeah, there are like some silly stressful moments in the book where Hope is interacting with like some of the cooks and like they're in the weeds and it's really overwhelming. But for the most part, I think readers, I mean, I certainly did when I was a kid, walk away with this idea of like, I can't imagine a better job. Like you get to be in such command of what you're doing. And I did love the scenes where we just see like Hope totally in the groove. Like she knows her stuff. 
But yeah, I, I think that people who have worked in this business for a long time, I'd be curious actually if anybody listening who's worked as a server for a really long time has read this book more recently and, and has thoughts about that. But yeah, I mean, there's never a question that Hope is going to work wherever they go next. And I do think she takes pride in it. Like the interesting thing about Waitressing for Hope is that it not only connects her to Addie because Addie is this amazing chef that's known for going to sort of failing establishments. It reminds me of some of those um, like shows on like the Discovery Channel or like AMC. My parents love um, like Bar Rescue or like I forget what the other ones are called where some guy goes into like a failing restaurant and just like fixes everything. That's kind of what Addie does. But it does also link hope to her mom, Dina, who is known as an amazing server. And the only link that that hope really actively still has to her mother is this understanding that she's following in her mom's footsteps professionally. So I do think like that was kind of sweet, although it, it of course made me sad because that whole relationship between hope and her mom just was heartbreaking. And uh, of course, I feel like hope's kind of like grasping at straws to maintain that connection. Yeah. I, I mean, as you were speaking, I was thinking about how it's interesting from a craft perspective what Joan does sometimes with the serving scenes is that the narrative switches to first person present, mm-hmm. um, whereas the majority of the book is in first person past. And the first time I noticed it, I, I was like going back like, wait, was this book? I, it really like because she wants to build up the immediacy of that job and what in like the urgency I think is her intention and it's a really cool because I'm always like reading with that kind of brain like a really cool craft way to go about that and I like that she was allowed like that reader trust kind of to be able to do something like that but I did also find myself thinking if this book was now there would have to be more justification for why Hope is allowed to just be like a business partner like you're saying or somebody that is just like Yep, here I am. I'm working at this diner now, too. And obviously, as she gets older, it makes a little more sense. But I mean, it's the summer before her junior year is when we meet her and the the story picks up on the move to Wisconsin. And so she's been at this for a long time. And I think that an editor in the now would need you to justify that in more of a way than like, this is just what I do. This is, yeah. There'd have to be some more like architecture around that. Yeah. Okay. So- To your point, I was trying to remember how old she was in that opening scene where she talks about her first waitressing job. And yeah, she was 14. It was my 14th birthday and I took to waitressing like a hungry trucker tackles a T-bone. That job was the biggest birthday present I'd ever gotten next to getting my name changed legally when I was 12. I've had three waitressing jobs over the last two and a half years, slung hash from Pensacola to Brooklyn, made money that most teenagers only dream about. Brooklyn was the best place yet. A couple of things here. (laughs) Okay, so... The job was the biggest birthday present I'd ever gotten. Mm. I feel like I need to know more about that. (laughs) I wonder if an editor today would be like, but explain. Like, why was it the biggest birthday present you've ever gotten? And then she goes on to talk about how she made all this money. I would have loved to see her spending some of that money or like using it later on. Because now that I'm coming back to these opening paragraphs, having finished the whole book, it does seem like she's kind of, you know, like thriving financially, but we don't get to see her enjoying any of that once they make the move. Like it would have been cool to see her treating herself or like having fun. And she and Addie are really like struggling through in the way of like the Gilmores. Like they are just making it work and we see them living in the apartment about the diner. And I guess like this goes back to the fact that she's a business partner. Like she's making money to support the two of them. 
But yeah, now that you're raising these questions, I'm wondering about them myself. Yeah, I just, I think that was what I meant too about like the way Hope doesn't put her own feelings on things sometimes that it just, there's a projection there or maybe like she wants to be seen as somebody like Addie and so that we view her through the lens of this like go-getter girl and then when she peels the layers back, which she does do in the peaks that we get, it's there's a real vulnerability there when we see her talking about her mom or her quest for a father and then you know, as the end, which we haven't even like touched, is so sad. Uh, And what she has been seeking this whole time, she receives and then how she responds to that is uh, like not what we get the whole story from her. While we're talking about her biological parents, I do want to make sure that I mention a couple of things. And then we, of course, have to find out what really happens once they make the move to Wisconsin. So there was one line that just like really broke me where Hope is talking about her mom and how great her mom is as a waitress and like how that's really her calling and Hope reflects I wish like anything my mom would treat me as well as she treats her customers ask me what I need take the time to see how I'm really doing see that I'm hungry to know my real parents but that word real it makes it seem like Addie hasn't done much and that's a lie she's done everything I need to say my biological parents But when you're in food service, you understand that sometimes you're making up for people in your customers' lives who haven't been too nice. You know what I like most about waitressing? When I'm doing it, I'm not thinking that much about myself. I'm thinking about other people. I'm learning again and again what it takes to make a difference in people's lives. So, of course, like the last part of that speaks to like what Hope really likes about her job. And also, I think this concept of found family, chosen family, which is a much bigger conversation today. I do think maybe Joan was doing something a little bit more pioneering in 2000 by like putting this teenager in a world where she had to put her own family together. I think that's probably something that I loved a lot about this book. But that line where she's talking about how like she just wishes that her mom would treat her like her customers. I was like, yeah. And then there's her biological father who she doesn't know. She doesn't even know who he is. And I want to shout out to Joan Bauer again that in the early 2000s, like this was still a pretty taboo topic, I think. Like that could have been seen as like really controversial and like horrible. And I don't think there's any shame in this book. Like I remember reading narratives like that when I was a teenager and there was always this sense of like somebody having to hide that. Like, I don't know who my dad is and that's super humiliating or my mom should be humiliated or this automatically makes my mom a bad person, which of course is not how I feel about it. That's how I remember that story coming off when I was a teenager And while Hope's mom is certainly not portrayed as a hero in this book, it does not have anything to do with the fact that she doesn't know who Hope's father is. It's because she's like a really negligent parent. So I do want to shout out to Joan Bauer for like maybe taking some of that stigma away a little bit. Like it's very matter of fact, like you were saying, Bridget, Hope has this very direct voice and she speaks about the fact that she doesn't know who her dad is with a similarly direct voice. That doesn't mean that she doesn't wish that she had a connection with him. She spends a lot of time over the years, dreaming up what her dad could look like. She has all of these fantasies about him being rich and handsome and young and active and able to do all of these things for her. Um, She's hopeful that at some point, like, he'll hear about her and come find her. And that also, like, brought me back to what I think was kind of a trend at the time. I was thinking about the Amanda Bynes movie, What a Girl Wants, where she's, like, obsessively trying to find who her dad was. And I think there were a few other movies at that time that did something similar. But that was another big sort of storytelling narrative trend at the time of like let's take these young girls on a quest to find their biological dad so that that is a part of Hope's story although 
at the beginning of the book, it's much more of like an internalized thing. And by the end, it's, it's on the external end. Yeah. She's really, as you were reading that excerpt, it strikes me like that Hope is such an, a selfless character and that she's really generous. And I, I think of that moment with her and Braverman where he makes the mistake with the, he makes the wrong order. He makes the order wrong. And she tells us, she's like, I have learned that even though I know it was his mistake, not mine, I apologize to him. And I think that kind of tells you a lot about her with so little. I and mean, that is what Joan is really good at is like, this is a short book too. And she doesn't really waste page space with much. <laughs> so she can get across points. And that is such a telling like character trait there. And then when it comes to this like found family, like she goes into meeting all these people with a real generosity and the, the hope, you know, as is her name, that they will turn out as good as she wants them to be. And even in seeking her father, that's what she's going for. And then when we, as we're jumping here, but like, you know, she finds a father figure and it was never about it being her biological father. It was about it being a father, a person to fill that role. And when she finds someone to fill that role, she is content and it isn't, it doesn't have to do with the actual blood relation. It has to do with the way that they treat her. And that's why her selflessness has been always in seeking and like wanting to be seen in the way that she is seeing other people. So we've laid some really good groundwork for Hope and for her origin story. Let's talk about what happens when they make this move to Wisconsin. So Addie has been called to help reboot the kitchen at this old school diner called the Welcome Stairways, which is owned by a man named G.T. Stoop. And as far as they know, when they get there, the reason that G.T. needs help is because he is struggling with leukemia and can't keep the same hours that he's used to keeping. They find out when they get there that there are some other interesting things happening, some other places where G.T. is also spending his time. And Hope is like used to starting over. She knows the drill and it always takes her like a little while to get comfortable, but she's very comfortable in the diner. Like I think we've established that pretty well. She gets there and she like immediately blows everybody away with how great she is at waitressing. And that, as you mentioned, like I like the way you described that, Bridget, she has this generosity in meeting new people and this generosity with her time. Like I think a lot of teenagers who are unhappy about moving might be surly about like getting into this new job, but she's like, nope, I'm going to jump right in and let me show you my stuff. And She's not shy about it. She's like, okay, I'm here to do a job and I'm going to do it. And almost immediately, in addition to getting swept up into life at the diner, she gets swept into this political campaign, which struck me as incredibly progressive. And I felt as though I was reading a book that could have been written in 2022. Like it felt so new. So GT, while he is taking some time off from the diner because of his health, he's decided that he's going to run against the incumbent mayor, Eli Millstone, who's just like a bad, corrupt guy. And the book really like takes readers through some of the specifics of why he's corrupt. Like it explains some of the local businesses that he's in cahoots with. I think it sort of peels back the layers that maybe kids and teenagers often don't get exposure to because people don't think they can understand it when in fact... It's not that difficult for them to understand and we should probably just give them some more credit. I just thought that Joan like really laid out the town's political landscape in a really clear way. And she introduces readers to this idea of organizing and especially youth organizing because the majority of the people that Hope meets and sort of rallies with for this campaign are not old enough to vote. And that's exactly why they're working so hard to get GT elected. And it's 
it's something that brings her into the community in a new way because they need her. Like they see her as an additional resource to help get GT elected. I thought that it was really cool. What did you think about the whole political angle and the way it was written? Did it feel as progressive to you as it did to me? Oh, yeah, I was really shocked by the level of depth to it. And then also, to your point, it is about organizing. And it's about how when you don't have and this all ties, I think, back into what we have been discussing about hope, when you don't have an official voice, when you're not someone that is, I guess, in this, for all intents and purposes, an adult, what can you do to be heard? And what can you do to be to create change or to still matter, quote unquote. And Hope really jumps into that head first into the deep end in terms of she's known this guy. I mean, the time that has passed is a few months. Like she gets there. It just was sticks out to me because it's Memorial Day. And yeah. <laughs> that, that's when she arrives. And that's the day we're recording this. So <laughs> we couldn't have planned it better if we tried. No, truly. I was like, oh, and so it just then I was like kind of aware of the time that's passing. But she really jumps right in. She doesn't know this man very well, but she believes in him right away. And she can see from what he's laid out because he does explain it so plainly to her that their mayor is corrupt. He's brought in. And there's a lot about like big, bad corporation with this like dairy farm corporation that comes in and is taking jobs from the local farms that live in this small Wisconsin town, which I love. I'm from the Midwest, so I appreciate that it's like just a truly, when you think of stories, you're never like, Wisconsin, that's where I should set it. And I like that she did that too. And she sort of brings that home at the end when she's like, this can happen anywhere, kind of whatever her that line is where she's like, and it happened in Wisconsin. And like, I think that's really beautiful. But yeah, the whole idea of the community organizing and like teens finding a way to make their voice matter and ultimately affecting change, even when they can't be officially a part of it, was really poignant and super, super ahead of its time. I underlined this line about five times. You think all teenagers care about are musicians and movie stars? Spend some time in Wisconsin. We'll blow your socks off. Yeah, that's what it's so great. That's so brilliant. I love that. It's so good. And I also was like trying to contextualize the, the time in which this book was written. Because of course, like I'm thinking about the political part of this book in the context of like our contemporary politics. I don't think we need to get like too political to have this conversation. But I was just I was considering like the place that Joan Bauer might have been in like intellectually and looking at the world around her when she wrote this book. It would have been between the 1996 and 2000 presidential elections that she wrote it. She was probably anticipating the 2000 election in which George W. Bush was elected. And I was so struck by like G.T. Stoop as this amazingly good candidate. And of course, like, I don't know that there was ever a candidate like in the history of the world or certainly not in the history of American politics who is as pure of heart as G.T. Stoop and who wants to help people as much as G.T. Stoop. Maybe like other mayoral candidates, candidates in small towns, but I just like felt kind of sad thinking about the fact that when I was a kid reading this in the early aughts, I probably did believe that there were people who were a lot more like G.T. Stoop than I could ever imagine now. Like, I just think we've lost so much of that hope and it makes me sad. Hope, haha. I'm optimistic that there are young people who are still coming to book to this book and books like it 
been able to draw like some parallels and, and maybe who can remove like some of that jaded energy that we all have now about our leaders yeah, and find hope and find inspiration in a candidate who, while perhaps not as good as GT Stoop, is similarly driven to help others. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think that if teens can pick this up today, if they find it, I think that they would appreciate the way that while she does, as the title tells you, has hope, she also still like processes disappointment and then regroups. There's a point where they think that GT Stoop is not going to win and hasn't won. And then she uncovers voter fraud, casually casually stumbles upon a voter fraud thing and finds another route. So it's sort of a, a testament to resilience in that way. Yeah, I was like, is there really a voter fraud subplot in this book? Like, <laughs> are we sure it, this book wasn't written like two years ago? <laughs> I know, it really is. Yeah, she's very prescient in many ways. Yeah, I wonder if Joan, you know, somewhere a couple of years ago was like, hmm, I really was ahead of my time with that book. So yes, to your point, like they spent all this time campaigning. They're really disappointed because it seems like GT Stoop has lost to Eli Millstone. And then they discovered that there were 120 people who had voted that were not actually registered. And so there was fraud. And in the end, GT wins, which is a big victory. Uh, But let's talk about what's happening personally. So there is a love interest for Hope. You mentioned Braverman earlier, Bridget. And Braverman is one of Hope's co-workers at the diner he's a line cook and we get hints pretty early on that like this is a kid who had all these big dreams to go out and do big things and he's really smart and ambitious but his family has come upon a hard times and he's decided to stay home and make money to help them out which you know he and hope kind of have some parallels that way what did you think about braverman as a love interest for her I, I mean, I'm always going to love a romance. I think it's, again, as with everything in this book, it's done with a real light touch. But it was an exciting, I mean, it's essentially a B-plot. Like, it's definitely not the focus. So it was a nice little coloring to some of the scenes. And as she does with so much of it, it's sort of like it happens and then the time moves forward and she's just like, yeah, we're still together. Like, oh, we're doing this, you know? Yeah. But I liked when she would zoom the lens in a little bit and give us some of those moments because we saw more of Hope's vulnerability there too in terms of she has these feelings and and she thinks Braverman does too and everybody's kind of telling her he probably does and then she's a little skittish and he finally works up the courage to ask her out and she says no, which is sort of a, It's actually pretty surprising for her. But then because she is such a generous character, she comes back later and she's like, actually, I only said that because I was panicking and I do definitely want to go out with you. And I found all of that super lovely. Yeah, and I liked him. He was appealing. He seemed like a good guy who was just trying to do the best he could. The real romance, though, a romance for the ages is between Addie and G.T. Stoop. Listeners, Bridget is nodding enthusiastically and yet at the same time slowly, emphatically maybe is the right adverb for that because it is quite a love story between these two. There's, again, like I can't help but think of Lorelai and Luke, the way they talk to each other. They're always butting heads. They are both stubborn and they both are really good at what they're good at and they're trying to be coworkers. Like GT has brought Addie in to help him and yet he wants to tell her what to do and at the same time she wants to be like, you brought me in to help you, like, shut up, basically. Like, let me do what I do well. 
So I would say for the first half of the book, that's the dynamic between the two of them. And I couldn't remember when I came back to the book if they end up together. And so I like wasn't sure if that's where we were leading. And I was excited when we found out that that was in the cards. And G2 does ask Addie out and they go on a few dates. Their relationship blossoms, as you might say, and they get married, which is just like really sweet. As I said, like Addie is very Addie in the way she throws her wedding. She's making all the food herself which Hope appreciates. And, you know, it's all very, like, true to Addie's history. Like, this is who Addie is. And I liked that. Like, Addie is always going to be Addie, whether or not she's married to GT. As a lover of romance, as a romance writer, what did you think about how Addie and GT's narrative played out? Oh, yeah. I would love to read their book from their perspectives. You know, very satisfying, of course, because I really did not know what kind of book this would be in terms of like, are we going to be getting that fulfillment? Like obviously the energy is there. And I think as a romance writer, I'm like, oh yeah, these people have a thing going. But it's like, I didn't know if that would be explored in this young adult novel. And it was, and I was super satisfied by it. But of course I would have loved to see more of it. But you know, Hope wasn't going to spend a ton of time reflecting on her aunts. (laughs) (laughs) energy and tension with the owner of the but she also hope lives by this like waitress honor code kind of that she's learned from her mom and also from Addie and a lot of it is like don't date the people you work with so both her and Addie defy that which I I love I love when people set rules for themselves in books and then break them of course like that's so fun Uh, but yeah I could have done could have done more on them but I was very satisfied with what we got even for as sad as it ultimately ends up being. Yeah. And well, the real, the real like opening that happens when GT and Addie get married is, is the one for Hope and her relationship with GT. He asks if he can adopt her. By the time the wedding happens, Hope and GT have established a really nice relationship throughout the campaign. Hope has gone on a couple of day trips with him to support his speeches and his different events. There's a point where she refers to him as like the finest man she's ever known. She's just like really proud to be associated with him. And so when he asks if he can adopt her, she's like, uh, yeah, duh. And he he's really excited to like see and experience all of the things that she's saved for her biological father. She's put together all of these scrapbooks to document her life so that the day that her biological father would show up, she would be ready to like just walk him through her whole life. And GT can't wait to be the one that goes through those stories with her and that last like little stretch where they are coming together as a family is really just lovely and and at the same time hard to read because we find out that GT's cancer is back and he clearly doesn't have a lot of time. So we go from like this emotional high to this emotional low. Yeah, it's it's really it's done so well, but the way that Hope is able to open her heart to him is so stunning and the way that he receives her too. I think because we have been able to see beneath the layers of hope, we know just how much that means to her. And the fact that he meets her with enthusiasm, it does to me, it is reminiscent of a romance novel in that it's presenting to you. And I don't want to say idealized because this is something that people can and should do show up for you in your life in that way. But it was a beautiful, like it's like a soft place to land. And he becomes that for her without question and it is so earned through the fact that he has treated her with respect since the moment she came in he's always valued her opinion he takes her seriously and those are the things that she's so desperately seeking and in return you know she really is vulnerable and trusts him with what is her 
most prized and like, I guess, deepest secrets or like the deepest like places of her and the fact that he just so generously accepts it. It's really, really beautiful. Um, And then I found myself when he did die, I didn't find myself as like super upset as I thought maybe I would. Obviously, I could see it was probably going in that direction. And I think once again, Hope had such a beautiful perspective on it and saying like, I was so lucky to get this figure for two years or whatever, or two, you know, roughly two years um, that she could never be, you know, she's sad, but at the same time, she has so much appreciation for what she got to get from him, which I think is beautiful. I also think that our final moments with GT didn't feel overly drawn out or like melodramatic, which goes a long way with me. Like once I saw the direction things were going, I was like, oh no, like let's not make this saccharine. Like I don't need the melodrama. And I think that Joan Bauer like paced it perfectly. And we had like just enough time with GT before he died. I just thought it was like picture perfect. It's really easy, I think, to like mess that kind of twist up to mess like that sort of goodbye up um, and to throw off like the whole tone and the whole balance of the book. And she nailed it. Yeah, they were really upfront from the beginning. And that's part of GT's campaign, even about the fact that he has a cancer that could kill him. And they end up using that to his benefit in the mayoral campaign. And that he's like, yes, I will. I will die for this cause because like, that's how much I care. Because Obviously, a lot of the reluctance early on in the you know constituents of their town is that you're sick. How can you be our mayor? And again, like talking about like her progressiveness, like a lot of this is like a really beautiful, like disabled advocacy, too, where she's talking about like he can do it. You know, you can't set his limits for him. He will set them for himself. And if he tells you he can, then he can. And yeah, again, she just she was doing a lot, a lot in this book, so much. And doing so much of it well. Well, I think we've covered really the whole story. It amazes me how much she she packed into what is a relatively short book. I, as I said at the beginning, just love this book even more than I remember loving it. It might be one of my new favorites that I've gotten to reread for the podcast. Bridget, I know you didn't read this book when you were a kid, but I'm curious how Hope was here compares to the expectations that you had for it or maybe how it compares to the kinds of books that you were reading when you were a kid yeah I I, my expectations for it I truly had no idea what I was going to get into and I think that it definitely had more substance and depth to it than I anticipated and I don't mean that as like a slight to Joan Bauer I mean it more that like as we've now discussed there was so many there were so many layers and so much I mean there are just side discourses you could have about so many um, elements of the plot Um, so that surprised me and then as in terms of like how I would compare it to what I was reading as a kid I think I would have loved to have read this as a kid I was super into we were just speaking about the 2000 election I was really really into it as a kid I was too (laughs) and I was like the kid and I'm the same age as you I was 10 in the 2000 election and so it was like fifth grade I think fourth fifth grade and and I remember in school I was like an ad I was an Al Gore like I was campaigning (laughs) and so I yeah so it's really funny to me I'm like this book would have been like totally my heart center. I would have been like, yeah, that's me. I get it. I know what it's like to experience disappointment. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I would have totally went completely feral for this. I think it would have been 
a perfect thing for me to receive. And I'm sad that I didn't at the scholastic book fair, didn't like see it or whatever, but yeah. We had a mock election at my school in 2000. Yeah. And it was, I remember we like built voting booths out of um, like refrigerator boxes and painted them like red, white, and blue. And I took it very seriously. Like I just remember Mm -hmm. printing out like tons of material to just make sure that I was teen gore, which I was. But I was like, I just want to be sure. Like I just need to know as an educated. We could have been campaign managers together, I guess. (laughs) Like we had to make sure that we were educated citizens. We didn't want to be spreading misinformation. So um, yeah, you definitely would have loved this book. We could have had a book club about it. And then we could have been campaign managers, (laughs) probably really advocated for a recount in 2000. And it would have been great. Oh, yeah. I was making poster boards about the hanging chads. I re- that is so distinct to me. All my family, I'm the youngest of five. They thought it was so funny that I was into this. And my brother is 16 years older than me, my oldest sibling. And so, you know, he was like a full grown adult right. at that point. So he was like buying me books about politics because he just thought it was so sweet that I yeah. was so into it. So, yeah, if anybody had known about this book, it would have been a great gift for me for my birthday that year. Yeah, you were the target target customer. <laughs> I really was. Also, like, I don't think that there was much in it that felt problematic or offensive. Everything, for the most part, I think held up. I don't, I don't remember flagging anything, which is always refreshing on the podcast. She used the word thug, and I oh, wasn't yeah. entirely, like, clear on the context. Uh-huh. I kept rereading that segment. That would be the only thing for me that stuck out, but it is a sort of like gray usage of it altogether. Yeah. I also can't, did she use that in dialogue or I can't, I, cause you're right. No, I, she's talking about a, there's a man who drives a yes. hearse that parks in front of the, yeah. the diner. Okay. And GT brings him in and gives him a meal. Yeah. But the way that she decides to refer to him is, is using the word thug. Yeah. Which was an, it, it was, it, to me, it was very dissonant to the rest of the story and I'm not sure what she but she doesn't speak poorly of him but that is the word she gives to him instead of like the man or the hearse driver I don't think we would use that word today now that you mentioned it I did I remember underlining because it was also used like several times in quick succession and I underlined it with a big question mark so that was her that was her name for him (laughs) instead of just Hearse driver, man, whatever. Thank you for reminding me of that because that I did I did notice that. Other than Hope was here, Bridget, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? As summer really is like in full swing, what should they be reading? Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> not the same. You know, I read a lot of romance, definitely. We love romance in our community, so hit us with their ex. I just read Just My Type by Fallon Ballard, which I was so great. I read it in one sitting, truly, which is a thing that I have heard tell of, but I, I don't know the last time I genuinely have done that, but I sat outside and read it. It's about, it's a second chance romance about people that had had a relationship, their high school sweethearts broke up and then they're kind of, uh, they're both go on to become writers and they end up, they're working at the same, I want to say it's a newspaper, magazine, a newspaper. And they come up with the idea to, to compete. They're doing like a competing dating segment with each other um and of course you know sparks fly and the, it's just it's a ton of fun it's really well done it's super it's a breeze to read in the best way and not in the way where I'm like I'm just flying through like skimming pages like I just was totally in it and loved it so I would say just my type found dollar I loved that I read The Neighbor Favor by Christina 
Forest. Um, but I did that one on audiobook, mm. which I highly recommend on audio. It's dual narrative between Nick and Lily. Again, these are books about like writing. This is about a girl who works in publishing and a guy who had published a fantasy romance under a pen name. And so they strike up a relationship together and it's her favorite book, his fantasy romance, but she doesn't realize that he's the author. Um, and he's not telling her for you know a bunch of myriad of personal reasons. Um, but it's, I really liked the audiobook. Uh, I thought it was super well done. Um, so I super enjoyed that. And then to just round out my, my romances, um, I read Sorry Bro by Talene Vascuni, which I have been singing the praises of since I read it. I thought it was awesome. It is a sapphic romance about an Armenian woman, an Armenian American woman who is in a relationship with a man he proposes, she panics and says, let me think about it. And in the time that they take, the break that they take from each other, she wants to recommit to her Armenian culture. And she's thinking to herself, maybe I want to be with an Armenian man. And so she sort of like tries to enter that dating pool and ends up falling for an Armenian woman instead. Love it. And it's just super vulnerable is the word I keep using for it because there's just a way that Talene writes that feels really like it's so tender and just feels like oh yes that's how that feels and like really honest in a way that I found super satisfying so those are my recommendations well all three of those sound like they would be fantastic at any time of the year but especially for summer so listeners I will link those in the show notes for this episode Speaking of summer books, Bridget, your new book has the word summer literally in the title. So it is the perfect, perfect, perfect read for this time of year. That summer feeling is out in the world and I am anxious for you to tell us all about it. So that summer feeling is the story of a recently divorced woman who goes to an adults only sleepaway camp with her sister in hopes of sort of reconnecting with her youth and just kind of finding her joy again. And while she's there, she runs into a man from her past that she thinks she's meant to be with and ends up falling in love with his sister instead. <laughs> so it's a sapphic romance. It has a really fun summer camp setting, adults at summer camp setting, and it is a ride. It's a perfect summer ride. It feels like sunscreen and bugs flying around you and citronella candles and all the good things. All the things you want in, in a summer read. Listeners, you, you might remember that, and I think this was either the first or the second episode of the year, Austin Sigmund Broca and Emily Wiberly recommended that summer feeling to us way at the beginning of 2023. So it has been on our radar for a long time now. And if you have not picked it up, now you have heard from Bridget herself. It is the time to get your hands on a copy and I will make sure that you have access to a link for it in the show notes. Bridget, it has been so fun to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. 
to reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>